Hello, listeners. This podcast is hosted by International Idea. In the next minutes, we will help you make sense of what's happening today in democracy worldwide. Hello, I'm Billy Phillips, Communications Officer for International Idea here in the Asia Pacific. I'm joined on the sidelines of the 7th Melbourne Forum by Alison Anitawaru Cole, an environmental lawyer in New Zealand. Earlier today, Ali gave a fascinating presentation about the challenges found at the intersection of the climate change response and political representation. Ali, thanks so much for joining me. Great. Thanks. Good to be here. Ali, let's set the scene first in terms of the science. What's been the arc of uh, greenhouse uh, gas and emissions generally? Um, and where are we now versus, say, pre-industrial revolution? The arc of the science has been pretty dramatic. If we uh, imagine a little timeline that uh, takes us back 800,000 years, that's uh, the earliest time uh, we have some greenhouse gas records in the atmosphere. And we we have a general picture that uh, for most of that 800,000 years, um, the parts per million of carbon dioxide was around 200 or 280 parts uh, per million of every every uh, uh, item of of a carbon uh, molecule versus um, a million other parts of molecules in the atmosphere. Um, if you think about us as a species, uh, we came on the scene around 300,000 years ago. So a pretty um, good chunk of that last 800,000 years, we were there... Uh, and everything that we did as a species kept us around that 200 to 280 parts per million. Uh, but in the last 100 years, we've seen greenhouse gas jump in uh, our atmosphere up to nearly uh, 400 parts per million. So you can see um, since the industrial era, the Industrial Revolution, everything that uh, we've been burning um Largely fossil fuels, uh, especially after World War One and World War Two, that was when we first uh, saw um, petroleum products being used um, for transport for the navy. Uh, sometimes they say that the Allies floated to victory um, on fossil fuels uh, during World War Two, and that just saw our greenhouse gas emissions spike up to nearly double the way uh, the the amount that we'd had um, for the last eight hundred thousand years. So if you take that bigger picture, we've got really um, good uh, climate science since about the 1950s. We already had some atmospheric research uh, taking place. And uh, to, to, to the point now where we have attribution science that can actually trace um, the fossil fuel uh, proportions in the atmosphere and the types of industries that those uh, gases were uh, most closely linked to. And from that, um, we know from attribution science that fossil fuels have caused around 78% of the greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere currently. Uh, so that's at 400 parts per million um, in the excess of uh, over and above that 200 and 280 parts per million that we've had for the last 800,000 years. And uh, specifically within that 78% of greenhouse gases um, that are coming from fossil fuels, we know that 20 companies, 20 specific fossil fuel companies have caused um, over a third of all greenhouse gases. 
Yeah, so that's a massive rocketing up in the last 100 years, which, I mean, essentially brings us to now, today. How is New Zealand experiencing climate change? I mean, as an island, I think we have these associations of erosion, sea level rise, extreme weather events. Um, Is that kind of accurate in terms of what the people are experiencing and um, what are the impacts that we're seeing now? New Zealand is experiencing climate change exactly as predicted by uh, climate science for decades and decades. Um, We've very recently actually, um, as of just the last uh, year or so, had a whole series of um, scientific reports that have done uh, translations of the existing science, which mainly has been led by the United Nations, and they have this um, intergovernmental panel um, on climate change of global scientists trying to make really complicated assessments of how climate change uh, will look around the world. So, um, what's been particularly powerful in the New Zealand context is we have um, a very uh, particular a social, political and legal relationship um, with our indigenous populations, Māori people. So we're um, really mandated in many different ways to ensure that we're properly assessing how these climate change impacts will uh, manifest uh, for Māori indigenous people. So we also have uh, reporting from Māori research groups uh, one in particular is called Ngāpai or Maramatanga, and they have done a, a Māori-specific climate impact assessment. Now, if you look across the demographics for Māori people, they're uh, among our most um, socially, socioeconomically um, disadvantaged, and we know that climate impacts are a, a social stressor, an economic stressor, uh, and they intensify um, vulnerable and marginalised groups' experience of um, a disparate treatment in society. And so this report really demonstrated that uh, if you take uh, our existing experience for Māori in New Zealand, uh, the health impacts from climate change are going to be way more disproportionately affecting Māori people. If we look at um, the, the the role uh, of, of cultural sites of significance for Māori people, they tend to be very coastal. Um, we all have uh, special relationships with uh, our lo- local mountain areas, And um, if you tie that into uh, ice coverage, whether or not the albedo effect, uh, which is basically when you reach a tipping point with um, ice melt, uh, to the point that the entirety disappears um, very quickly, we can see uh, not only the way that that impacts um, the the structure of our mountainous regions, but it has the flow-on effect for our freshwater sources as well. So across the board, I think we're we're seeing um, everything that has been predicted is is coming true, is coming true quicker and earlier than uh, anticipated in some cases, and we're seeing even greater impacts for uh, our indigenous Maori populations. So you've mentioned the Maori risk assessment. That was essentially a parallel risk assessment, if I understood you correctly from your earlier presentation, uh, running in parallel to the government's risk assessment um, in which they identified 43 priorities that were categorised into five larger groups, which they essentially called domains. One of those domains is the natural environment. But from my reading on the parallel effort that you've described, it seems like the impacts on the natural world almost 
aren't put away into simply one little category as they were in the government-led effort. Is that kind of because of the way Maoris have a separate relationship or a different relationship with their natural space compared to, um, you know, I would say uh, Caucasian white New Zealanders? So there's a a really strong commitment um, that anything uh, done in the public sphere that involves uh, Māori issues or impacts on Māori people must be done by Māori people and for Māori people. So we have this interesting dynamic where um, there is a responsibility on the government um, uh, to ensure that they're respecting all their legal obligations and a big part of those uh, obligations comes from a treaty that was signed in 1840 uh, between the um, uh, Māori representatives at the time and uh, representatives from the Crown uh, Colonial Empire in England. In that treaty, known as Te Tiriti o Waitangi, uh, it's um, over time developed a sense of principles uh, that the the crown needs to uphold and implement in any policy or legislation, and that includes um, matters such as participation and active protection. So we see when it comes to climate change, there's lots of very clear areas where uh, participation and policy making um, must be enabled by the crown for Maori but also where the Crown needs to take active steps um, to, to protect uh, Māori in the context of, of climate impacts. However, uh, you'll, you'll see that the, the, the Māori research is always, um, it's a very active space and it, by necessity it must be so. Now, um, there has been a wealth of literature in this area, and it's it's known under the kind of Kopapa Māori research um, methodologies, and uh, some of some of our um, scholars in this area are uh, groundbreaking on the on the world stage and setting out um, indigenous methodologies, and central to that Kopapa Māori and indigenous methodologies approach is that uh, whenever any line of research or or public policy is initiated, there must also, um, uh, under the partnership model mandated um, by Te Tiriti o Waitangi, there must be Māori-led research and initiatives. Um, and this is where the the report came through um, that was done specifically by Māori researchers. And it tells a very, it has a very different approach, and it does tell a, a different story, which you've picked up on. And part of that, I think, is if from from what I know, growing up in Tel Māori, there is a very different starting point. Um, the The relationship with uh, the natural environment is a, a relationship of kinship. So uh, uh, we we have direct lineage um, to our fresh waterways, to our mountains, and we, we talk about this in the context of um, waka papa, which is the Māori term on, on lineage and um, uh, our ancestral uh, connections. 
and imbued within that like um, familial connection is that sense of guardianship. So we use the word kaitiakitanga. And the guardianship, it kind of uh, is one of the central, um, yeah, like I guess behavioral modifiers in the sense that uh, when we um, describe how Indigenous Māori social interactions um, operate, you often hear the concept of tikanga. Tikanga and kawa are... um, uh, and some, sometimes they're described as like custom lore um, or lore spelled L-O-R-E. And uh, central within tikanga is all of those aspects I just mentioned about the natural world. And um, a lot a lot of um, the, the, the day-to-day um, uh, life of people living within their ancestral lands is interacting with nature um, through a whole range of different activities and, and it's kind of difficult to to run through them on the spot because I'm just thinking to myself, gosh, how do I explain something <laughs> like um, feeding the Modi? Like there's processes where you interact um, with uh, natural um, features, for example, and you interact them with them in a way that is probably akin to like an observation process, like um, monitoring for for well-being, but it actually gets deeper than that because it's operated on a spiritual level also. Um, and uh, another key example there is uh, w- what we call mahinga kai, which is um, the the way of gathering food, uh, the the way of growing food and cultivating fruits. Um, which I guess could look as as accessible as fishing on the one hand, but then can um, get into really interesting cutting-edge practices in terms of uh, nurturing like reef-based species. And uh, we we have specific forms of knowledge and science around what we would call matauranga Māori. Yeah, so um, I would say overall it's kind of like it's an entirely different reference point. Um, the natural world is is absolutely central, and that means when we transition into um, a climate response, I think if we if we're uh, building policy and legal pathways, mm. uh, it really needs to be um, led by Maori uh, for Maori because it's uh, an entirely different worldview with the natural environment at the centre. Yeah, it sounds like you've really clearly described a distinctly almost opposite worldview between these two camps um, that has been manifested in two different kinds of risk assessments. And it really reminds me of this phrase in activism, which is uh, nothing for us without us, right? That kind of sounds like a manifestation of that going after a parallel risk assessment that has given um, perhaps a different interpretation or a different worldview of what is a climate emergency, which... I mean, uh, Jacinda Ardern, it was 2020, I think, when she famously declared a climate emergency, um, if my memory serves me. Um, And what has happened since then from the government side specifically in pursuit of their Zero Carbon Act? Because I've heard a lot about what uh, Maori activists and lawyers are doing. What is the government side of things doing or are they actually uh, quite linked now? The government is... um 
really busy. Uh, there's a lot of different reform tracks underway. And um, it's interesting because part of the, the Māori worldview, as I understand it, is um, the way we talk about it where I'm from. The, the, the climate change concept is um, perceived sometimes as a, a construct that doesn't directly map into our lived experience mm-hmm. in the sense that um, when we're talking about uh, emissions and, you know, that change um, from 200 to 280 parts per million up to 400, nearly 400 parts per million, like that's very much an atmospheric focus. And in, in Te Ao Māori, uh, we, we couldn't talk about the atmosphere separate and distinct from talking about the earth and mm. talking about the waterway systems and, and uh, talking about like um, forestry systems. And um, interestingly, what we're seeing with government responses is at the moment there is such a comprehensive suite of reforms underway, looking at resource management reform, looking at uh, reform across the, the the three waters, the fresh water, the, the storm water, the mass reforms at a local government level, which of course interacts in terms of um, uh, the way all of these environmental um, and, and resource management procedures are implemented and so um it's pretty it's it's pretty hard at the moment to kind of see where things are going to settle where they're going to land just as one small example um in this uh, reform of our resource management law the government has kind of decided to break the existing law which is over 800 pages um into three distinct pieces of legislation and under the first piece which was just going to be really focusing on resource management um consents they they kind of realised a little bit uh, late in the game that they were kind of renegotiating all of the um, uh, treaty settlements um, that Māori had gone through vis-à-vis the um, Waitangi uh, Tribunal. And so they had to kind of, um, I think, realise that that uh, partnership with Māori is going to be essential across, across the suite of reforms. Now, whether or not we're truly in the midst of like a, a kind of climate emergency declaration parliamentary session is is hard to reconcile with some aspects such as the continued issuing of oil and gas permits. Mm. And there was some litigation from a, a group called Students for Climate Solutions um, earlier this year, a, a judicial review uh, basically pointing to all of the um, international uh, research, the report from the International Energy Agency um, in 2021 saying that all um, uh, re- new oil and gas uh, exploration uh, investment must end immediately and basically trying to say that the decision to allow continued um, oil and gas um, drilling was unreasonable or irrational and so they lost they lost and then they're currently looking to um, appeal that decision This was a youth-led suit wasn't it? Correct, a youth-led suit um, uh, with a fantastic well a bunch of lawyers came together and um, followed up on some previous uh, judicial reviews around similar issues and there is a judicial review um, by a, a Maori leader Mike Smith 
and he's currently seeking leave to appeal to the Supreme Court. Mm. And in the midst of all of this, we've got some new case law that has made some pretty remarkable uh, judgments on the role of tikanga that I mentioned earlier, the kind of Māori custom, um, Māori law, L-O-R-E, and uh, demonstrating that um, we're now in a bi-dural... Well, we, we've been... We, we, we're, we're increasingly acknowledging and implementing that New Zealand under Te Tiriti is a bi-dural uh, legal system, so two uh, legal traditions coming together. And what's going to be really interesting looking ahead is um, we get the Climate Adaptation Act, for example. That's one of the three new pieces of legislation from our resource management um, reform process. It's going to be really interesting to see um, how the government's uh, interpreting that uh, partnership and co-design uh, obligation under the Te Tiriti principles with Māori, for Māori, by Māori, like you said. Um, and uh, whilst we're still in, I would say, a, a mitigation crisis, like um, adaptation is kind of how you clean things up once uh, we're no longer in um, a feasible mitigation space, but we do have some capability to reduce emissions and I think seeing what's going to happen next at a leadership level, um, including from Māori leadership, uh, is going to be really interesting and hopefully um, hopefully, some, hopefully exciting and giving us some inspiration. So those are really interesting and I think inspiring legal challenges and I think particularly we see this around the world with youth and uh, ethnic minority groups taking this to court. Um, moving to the voters, what does it seem like voters actually want though when they go to the polling booth? What are they demanding of their representatives, if anything, in response to climate change? And just thinking about the Australian context, which I think is not too dissimilar to New Zealand, where there are really diverse and opposing interest groups. I'm thinking of agricultural industries in particular. What is the experience like in New Zealand? Um, I think I read the beef and dairy industry managed to get themselves excluded from the emissions trading scheme. Is that correct? And, and how, are, how are voters turning up at the booth? Voting is pretty interesting in in uh, around climate change issues um polling uh, from an organization called 1.5 um i think it's .org.nz has specifically looked uh before the most recent election and then um they did a, another um round of polling um, more recently, and found that across the board there it's a pretty healthy um, uh, uh, degree of support for climate change policies. And um, what's interesting is there is a demographic breakdown that does change with age. Younger people um, want uh, far more prioritisation and commitment, uh, older populations um, less so. Um, and the the most interesting takeaway from the comparative from the first uh, set of polling and then the follow up set of polling by one one point five um, is that the needle didn't shift much, and so the analysis done by that organisation uh, tends to suggest that um, 
where people uh, sit with their views is not really getting changed much by our existing societal ecosystem. So we've all kind of come to a view on it in our own way and we kind of sit with that and go about our daily lives. Um, Now, if we're concerned about the impacts on on climate change um, for us currently in the near future and the long-term future for our children, there will need to be some type of shift in the general um, opinion of the general population. And what is the general opinion of the general population right now? It's it's kind of in that, like, yes, we're generally in favour of, of climate change being addressed as a matter of broad policy, but it's not at that, uh, it, and it varies dramatically by age. And um, I wouldn't say um, that from there... Uh, I don't think you could like predict an election outcome on the basis mm-hmm. of that polling um, to date. Is there a regional and a, a regional, rural, and kind of city divide as well on on uh, perceptions or opinions about climate change? I think you're touching on a really important issue, which, if if we believe in the reliability of polling, it would tend to suggest that that degree of breakdown would probably reveal a lot of information that could be um, a bit predictable. I guess we maybe have a sense, uh, I just live in a rural region and I know for a fact that at the, at the moment the practicalities of um, uh, moving away from internal combustion engines could present challenges if you're living remotely. Um, but the main point is that uh, what the, 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 the lack of change in the polling between um, uh, the, the, the first baseline uh, poll data and the, the follow-up poll data, it just suggests that uh, if anything is going to change, it depends on political leadership. Mm-hmm. So that can go many ways. If you have um, governments coming through in support of industries um who want uh, to be exempted from the emissions trading scheme, like you mentioned, you can see there'd be a very different type of um, political narrative coming from that uh, type of leadership. On the other hand, if uh, the climate emergency is advanced, if uh, political parties on that end of the spectrum decide they want to prioritise climate um, mitigation getting emissions down urgently as quickly as possible, um, we've we've got a, a great body of social science research from a group called The Workshop, uh, led by Jess Bernard Shaw. And her research around um, uh, leadership and communication styles suggests that if any of that polling is going to shift towards being more strongly in favour of strengthening climate change responses. The political leadership will need to be far more proactive. We'd have to see um, a kind of public information campaign at the level of what happened with COVID, for example. Yeah, some some really focused um, efforts to, to connect with voters um, around uh, the context of the climate crisis. Mm. So um, during your presentation today at the Melbourne Forum, which sadly our listeners weren't privy to, but I was, uh, you termed this issue of kind of climate change and representation and policy as 
the Achilles heel of democracy. Um, that obviously sounds huge and scary, but what do you really mean by the Achilles heel of democracy within this, uh, with regard to this issue? I even wonder if it's a little bit of a Achilles heel of human nature. It's, it's very hard for anyone, I think, to give up their privilege. Um, it takes a great degree of compassion. It takes a great degree of benevolence. Um, it also presupposes that you have something to give, that you're at least um, having enough of your basic needs met. You have shelter, you have safety, you have food, and you you have the um, um, graciousness of spirit and heart to uh, make things maybe a little bit more uh, or less, less convenient, shall we say. Because certainly um, our lives now are at the height um, of, of convenience and we have a lot of fossil fuel products to thank for that in a way. So that kind of begs the question, like, uh, what type of transitions can take place? We hear a lot about this term, just transition. Uh, I think we went through a lot of lessons during um, other transitions in recent um, memory. I'm thinking of like what happened at the end of the 1990s, what a lot of us went through um, in the 80s with the big economic shifts that uh, were the exact opposite of a just transition. So it just really um, kind of uh, begs the question really how how can we give up the things that we've come to rely on for um, our convenience and uh, our quality of life? Yeah, so if, if we think of that as a basic human psychology challenge, and then if we translate that onto the democratic um, level, um, how can a political leadership um, engage in all those techniques that we were just talking about and read the excellent work of Jess Bernard Shaw at the workshop and uh, look at behavioural psychology around um, uh, climate change implement, uh, solutions and uh, how do we activate that in a democratic context where the way that political leadership works is they're, they're seeking to reflect what voters want. Mm. So it's kind of a chicken in the egg situation. And uh, I think that really, um, when we think of the short-term timeframes that democracies typically operate under, and I say short-term comparatively to like the climate change, which is unfolding over like decades and centuries, I think we've we've got a mix, mis, mismatch there. Yeah. If the job of a politician, in theory, the ideal job of a politician um, or a lawmaker, policymaker, is to reflect the interests of not so much the people broadly, but their specific electorate, their constituency, uh, and those people uh, would like to vote against climate change or pro-environment measures for their own reasons, many of which are quite justified and, and fears around job loss and, and you know access to um, other resources. Isn't that democracy essentially working as intended? Is that what you mean by an Achilles heel of democracy is uh, people can and should ha and often do have the right to vote against their own best interests? And then where does that leave us? I think what we're speaking to here is actually the definition of, of a true leader. And I remember in, in my childhood... Uh, there was a, it was a, you know, there were turbulent times, but there were leaders who came forward that had vision, um, that had uh, talent, 
communication talent, who had compassion, and were able to, through those qualities of of, a, of true leadership, they were able to um, uh, grasp the Achilles heel of democracy. And I think that's where, uh, if we're to get through the, the climate crisis, we're going to be um, needing that type of um, leadership and, and vision. And um, we're certainly trying in all other directions. We've got, you know, like fantastic um, commissions all around the world uh, working on like independent advice and monitoring. We've got amazing scientists all around the world um, working on data and verification. But when it comes to the political space, that really, I think, comes down to a, a question a question of leadership. And it's actually really exciting because this, I guess, is going back to our our human nature. You kind of never you never know when um, a leadership um, moment might happen. You don't know when a leader might suddenly crop out, uh, pop out of the of, of the woodwork. Um, and uh, certainly, that's where I think uh, we we could put some hope. And and why not? Um, think about yourself. Could you be that leader? Could you be the person? Could could it be someone you know? Mm. Um, it just seems like um, uh, you know we could be going into some really interesting times where uh, there could be new models of bringing people together. And we've we've seen examples um, in in recent politics. You know, like people would have never thought that we could ever have seen some types of um, political leaders come to the fore in the global stage. And, yeah, some of that's been for uh, the, the better, some <laughs> that's been for the worst, depending on where your politics lies. But I, I think that goes to show that, um, yeah, when it, what do they say? Like, um, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. So. And it speaks to an interesting point where we discuss representation and demands on our political representatives almost in a passive way, as if there's no uh, potential that we could, in fact, be our own representatives in that political space, Um, which I suppose brings me back to uh, the youth-led legal challenge um, that you mentioned, which had not been successful so far. Um, What was their argument, in brief, and what more could they do to get it over the line? Is it, as you mentioned before, perhaps uh, the absence of a compelling enough leader? So... um New Zealand uh, Students for Climate Solutions were uh, putting together a judicial review on the Minister for Energy's decision to issue um, new permits under um, a a previous block offer um, under the Crown Minerals Act. So it, it does get quite technical, but at the heart of it, they... We're looking at um, uh, the reasonableness of that decision and pointing to some consequences uh, linked uh, to impacts on um, Māori under the treaty, but also looking at the um, emissions increase um, in the light of like reports from the International Energy Agency. Now, um, there is a global... Uh, increase in this uh, type of response, like looking uh, into the legal space um, for for accountability and seeking review of um, political decisions. 
and uh, there's 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 like um enough happening that I think it's it's got to the point where it's posing interesting questions um for business leaders you know they've got to think of uh, their legal risk they've got to think of um their business um strategy uh, they've got to think of how to report back on um sh- to to shareholders and uh in the me- in the same time um there's increased um financial disclosures um in terms of uh, climate risk and uh, I think the overall trajectory, um, at least in the legal space, is introducing, uh, I would say, yeah, new dynamics th- to go into decision-making processes across a whole range of sectors, um, economic sectors um, in particular. And uh, I, I know that at the moment... Everything's kind of you know pending because um, I believe Students for Climate Solutions are seeking to appeal, um, and Mike Swift's uh, case for um, Maori uh, rights under Te Tiriti uh, for climate change is pending. His request um, to seek uh, leave to appeal to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know if at the moment we can um, speak to like a kind of body of legal uh, precedent Um, but I think uh, in the same way that we saw like the insurance industry um, shift their uh, assessments as the climate science was coming through I think there is probably enough information out there regarding legal risk that could lead to some shifts in decision making um, in different sectors So we're we're recording this in November. Uh, not sure when it will be released, but we would be remiss, I suppose, if we didn't uh, acknowledge that while we're here in Melbourne, COP twenty seven is going on in Egypt. Mm. Um, how does the co governance model that New Zealand is taking to COP twenty seven work in practice between the government and Maori groups? So under the United Nations uh, climate framework. Um, there is a really unique um, mechanism that uh, is not in any other United Nations mechanisms just yet. And it's a specific participation track for local communities and Indigenous peoples. Um, It's known as ALSIP, uh, Local Communities and Indigenous Peoples Platform. And uh, it's essentially an attempt to activate uh, an international law principle mandated under the UN Declaration um, for the Rights of Indigenous People, UNDRIP, which requires that anything uh, impacting on Indigenous communities has to involve um, fully informed prior consent, which is known as FPIC uh, in in short acronym language, and, and uh, when um, the Conference of the Parties or the COPs uh, happen every year, there is a entire um, participation process wherein the work program of all the member states to the United Nations and Paris Agreement and the Framework Convention on Climate Change, all of those states have um, different work streams 
uh, like under Article 6, they'll be looking at setting up the the carbon credit market. Um, under Article 8, they're looking at um, loss and damage and how to address losses from climate change, how to address damage from climate change. And there's theoretically um, gatherings of representatives of Indigenous and local communities globally who somehow find funding to make it to the COP. And they convene um, before the states uh, arrive. They work through uh, the various um, uh, streams, uh, the Article 6, the Article 8, um, many many other different um, components. They're um, working out positions between themselves. And then as soon as the state arrives, the states arrive, there's this kind of... um, official negotiation stage between the states where they work out between themselves what the position's going to be vis-a-vis each um, kind of legal outcome. And then um, Indigenous peoples are rushing to kind of uh, feed into those negotiation processes. Now, they're very clearly told you are not negotiators, but Mm -hmm. this is a participation track. So uh, New Zealand um, also has... Uh, representation within ALSIP, uh, people who um, travel to the COPs and um, engage in this back and forth with member states. But then there's also the question of what's happening within New Zealand because the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, when they send their representatives over to COP, they have like a negotiation mandate. They have their uh, positions on all the kind of juicy questions of the day and uh, the co-governance model under Te Tiriti um, would suggest that Māori uh, would co-design that negotiation mandate mm. with um, the Ministry for Foreign Affairs and Trade. And that, I believe, is still in the process of being um, sussed out. Okay, so the next question I'm going to ask you is about this perception of New Zealand um, kind of you know, being a bit of a uh, leading the charge in terms of climate change policy and the uh, impact that Maori groups have had in, in dragging them kind of along. Mm. But you said something really interesting in your presentation about uh, from Maori culture using their weapons against them uh, and not to put words in your mouth, but I think that would be a really good way for you to explain almost uh, in a really engaging way how Maori groups have kind of utilised law to drag the government into action. So if you wanted to say that, it would be really good, just because I think it helps uh, explain to non-legal-minded or educated people. It, it It's a hook, right? It explains mm. it pretty well. So um, is that? Yeah. Yeah. So there seems to be a perception of New Zealand, uh, at least internationally, as really leading the charge in terms of climate change policy and that it's really been Maori groups that have been instrumental in almost dragging the rest of the country along in terms of policy. Uh, How have Maori groups done that? Maori have been um, fighting for their rights um, ever since the colonial um, presence came to New Zealand. And um, uh, there's a long history of... Um, Māori seeking uh, justice within those formal uh, colonial court settings. And sometimes that's kind of um, perceived as a little bit of a, a 
a contradiction to be utilising colonial structures whilst resisting them. And uh, there's um, a, a, a way in which it makes sense, at least to me, and where with some of the old people that um, have shared these stories with me, that uh, we had a, a period of very intense warfare in most of New Zealand, but particularly in the area where I'm from, since around the 1860s to the 1880s or so. And uh, part of like the custom of war, which was really on display in the Taranaki region, was um, a lot of innovation and warfare. So you've mentioned, I suppose, a real necessity for innovation uh, and an innovative legal approach to many things, but uh, in this case, environmental protection. Something that I think grabs a lot of people uh, within the context of New Zealand is this concept of legal personhood of trees, rivers, mountains, uh, features in the natural environment. How does that really work in practice from a legal perspective? So... um under the um, under Te Tiriti o Waitangi, uh, there has been um, a a tribunal established to process uh, a redress for historic um, grievances, and um, one of those uh, innovations during negotiation under uh, Te Tiriti was an effort to really reflect the Māori experience um, wherein the natural world um, literally encompasses our extended uh, family and uh, are in particular revered as ancestors or um, and, and so, like, where I'm from, our mountain is known as our koro, or, our, like, our grandfather. And so uh, um, there's been a few um, communities around New Zealand where uh, either a river or um, a forestry region or a mountain have such a, a importance in their cultural framework that uh, when these legal um, negotiations were ongoing around the treaty through um, the the, the Waitangi tribunal process, um, the recognition of that personhood was really um, just a natural evolution of that kind of um, partnership and um, bicultural and bidural approach. And... um, it's been interesting because um, there's there's a lot that's been written on like the implications of legal personhood, and uh, as as it is currently, um, yeah, I I I think it's um, kind of standing um, on its own merit, and uh, by that I mean that the the recognition of the legal personhood um, speaks volumes. Ali, thank you so much for joining me. That was great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Democracy Ideas podcast. Keep following International Idea on social media. We need all of you to participate in constructing better societies. Goodbye.